0: Hello and welcome. My name is Justin Reisch, and I'm the program director of the National Churchill Leadership Center at George Washington University. To mark the 20th anniversary of the terrorist attacks on September 11, 2001, I'm joined today by Carl Rove, former senior advisor to President George W. Bush. Carl, thank you for your time today. You bet. Thanks for having me. So while most listeners uh, to this podcast and to this video who will be viewing it probably remember that day and have memories of that day Um, many others such as the students that we serve at george washington university were not alive 20 years ago or or simply have no memory of the events Uh, thus i'd like to begin our conversation by having you recount your personal story of september 11 2001 uh, and then we can get into its legacy and impact on on
1: political leadership well, um, thanks, Justin, again, for having me. And um, I, I have, uh, you know, there are days in your life that uh, sort of remain in your memory. And uh, the events of 9-11 remain very close uh, in, to me and in my heart and my, my brain. I, I'm, um, at 8.48, just after 8.48 a.m., I was standing outside Emma Booker Elementary School in Sarasota, Florida when my phone rang. And it was my White House deputy, Susan Ralston, and she said a plane has flown into the World Trade Center. We don't know if it's jet or prop, commercial or private. You may remember that earlier that summer, a small plane had flown into a a uh, New York building on the Hudson River. The a small pilot had gotten off course, lost control, and slammed into a building. So we we didn't know what it was. But it was just after 8.48 a.m., and I thought it was uh, important enough that I walked about 10 or 15 feet away, and the president was shaking hands outside of Emma Booker Elementary with a bunch of parents and faculty and local dignitaries and uh, school officials. And uh, I told him, and he sort of raised an eyebrow like, you know, find out more. A couple minutes later, we walked into the elementary school and into what was called the staff hold. Wherever a president travels, there's a room that's designated as the holding room. And in there were uh, some secure telephones that had been installed the day before and guarded by the Secret Service overnight. And Condi Rice, was the national security advisor, was waiting to talk to the president and had the same sketchy information. And um, she walked a few moments after that, he walked into the classroom. In the meantime, I, I helped scurry around. I, my recollection is that either we didn't have enough televisions or we had one television. But anyway, I helped steal a television from a classroom. And I was on the floor trying to plug it into the outlet. And there were three, I remember there were three outlets to plug it into. I had the power cord in, but there were three cable outlets. And when I screwed it into the first one and it made a connection, it, it, it made a popping sound. But then there was just snow on the on the, on the the set. So I, pulled, I unplugged it plugged it into the second one, screwed it in, and when it made a connection, it made a loud pop sound and a voice said, what have we just seen? What have we just seen? And it was the second plane flying into the World Trade Center. Chief of Staff, Andy Card, uh, determined that uh, he needed to tell the president. And Andy walked over to the door, separating the holding room from the second grade classroom where the president's listening to a reading demonstration. Uh, The event was designed to help build support for his no child left behind education reform. And I remember when Andy got to the door, it seemed he put his hand on the door and then it seemed like an eternity before he turned the handle and walked in. And I didn't know why. I'm sure it was like 1001, 1002, but at the time it seemed like an eternity. And um, years later, I I happened to be with him and somebody asked him uh, to to talk about that moment of telling the president. And he said when he, real, when he got to the door, he realized he needed to know exactly what he was going to say so the president wouldn't ask any questions. And so the famous photograph of uh, Andy uh, cupping his hand, uh, whispering in the president's ear and telling him that a second plane's flown into the World Trade Center. The president had to make a decision. Should he immediately stand up and excuse himself or should he let the reading demonstration finish? He thought it would be like a minute and a half or so or less than a minute, but it ended up being nearly four or five minutes. And can you imagine sitting there knowing this and, and hoping that the thing ends? Now, I've known the president a long time. So when he stood up in that classroom and walked back into the holding room, you know, look, the holding room was filled with a lot of very impressive people. Andy Card, the chief of staff. Mike Morrell was the CIA briefer that day traveling with us. He was. He later became the acting director of the CIA. There was Deb Lawler, who was a top official with the National Security Council. There was General Richard Tubb, the president's physician. Wherever the president goes, his physician travels with him uh, with a nurse uh, carrying a small, you'd think it's a small cooler, and it is, and inside is the president's blood. So if they need to make a trans uh transfusion they got it and anyway there were some really top flight people in there you know military aides major tom gould of the air force major moranis of the marines really impressive people but there was it nonetheless at some level of anxiety in the room and the president walked in and i'll never forget it he was cold as steel and calm and he said we're at war give me the director of the fbi and the vice president and we jumped on the stews the self the the secure phones and we were able to get the newly installed director of the fbi um, robert muller of famous fame later on and uh after some difficulty we got he did get a hold of uh, vice president cheney but the president said uh let's i need to speak to the country about this so th- this classroom was largely devo- devoid of adult furniture so he sat down in a small chair meant for kindergartners at a small table meant for you know elementary school kids and um dan bartlett the deputy director of communications ari fleischer and i sat there talking with him about what he needed to say as he sort of wrote an outline in in, in his indecipherable handwriting with a sharpie And and as he did so, uh, the head of the Secret Service detail, Eddie Morenzel came in and Eddie said in a very quiet voice to the president, Mr. President, we need to get you to Air Force One and airborne as rapidly as possible. They were worried that his whereabouts were known and that there might be an aircraft inbound Mm -hmm. for the elementary school to, to smash into the elementary school and take out the president of the United States. So the president went in, made his remarks, and he insisted on you know he was not going to be he, he was not going to leave until he had he, he understood that in a moment like this it's important for a leader of a country to share information with the american people and to do so in a calm deliberate manner and that's what he did and then we went to get in the motorcade normally i'd be in a vehicle about two or three uh, cars behind the president most of the time but that day he whistled at me and pointed to the back seat of the uh, of the of the, uh, the limousine code named stagecoach Uh, and I got in with him and we went to the airport and normally the motorcade moves at about 40 miles an hour. It was going to 80, 85 miles an hour. And they wanted to get him to 40,000 feet uh, as quickly as possible and and, and out of danger. And, uh, that we were, it was quiet. I mean, uh, nobody said much. And then the phone rang. There's a little phone at that time on the side of the, of the, The president was sitting on the right hand side of the vehicle and he pulled it, pulled the phone out and started talking, listening first and then talking. I could only hear one side of the conversation, but I knew it was bad when he said, is Rumsfeld alive? It was a strike on the Pentagon. And um, at that moment, I couldn't look at him. So I looked, I looked to the side and realized that if I could reach out to the window of of the limousine, that uh, that there was a police car, there were four police cars bracketing our vehicle. Two in the front, two in the back, sort of overlapping, you know, so we so that they were t- it was we're on a, a freeway so they could occupy all the space. And I'd never seen it before, I never saw it again. Later on in the day, I said to Eddie Morenzo, what was that all about? And he said, we were worried about a car bomber intersecting the motorcade. And we wanted the, if that happened, we wanted the bomb to go off 15, 10 or 15 feet further away from the vehicle in order to give the president a, a better chance of surviving um we got to the airport um normally when the president you know this is a great ceremony (laughs) coming and going in an airport in air force one and normally what happens is the president has a a departure group that's of local officials and so forth who want to say goodbye to him and he shakes hands and chit chats for a few minutes and then walks up the steps by himself and at the top turns around waves to the crowd even if there's no crowd wave wave like wave like there already is a crowd and then goes into the aircraft and then, you know, three or four minutes later, the staff begins to load onto the plane. The press begins to load on the plane at the back. You know, it takes, you know, 10, 15 minutes to get aboard. Everybody gets buckled in. And then it's like, you know, the normal departure, you know, they they pull away the gate, they close up the aircraft, they pull away the gate. uh, You know, they do their pre-flight check. You know, you sit there for a few moments and you move away from the gate. You, you know, take leisure time, get to the end of the runway, not that day. About, the president was about had just over halfway up the steps, and Marenzel, who was standing next to me, looked at me and said, move, which was not an invitation to take my time. And as I was running up the steps, I looked over to my right, and they were taking all the electronic equipment from the reporters and having a bomb dog sniff it before they let them on the plane. They were afraid wow. that they didn't want somebody to sneak a bomb on the plane. Uh, if you, as you get on the plane uh, on the Air Force One, uh, it's a 747, and there's a long uh, uh, hallway to, to directly to you. If you turn left, you go into the president's private quarters—a bed, a shower, a head—you know, so forth. And so everybody turns turns right, and the first door on the left is the president's private cabin. Then there's the stairway to the to the cockpit. Then there's a small medical unit. And then there's a galley. And then there's a for the for the president and then there's a a, a, where i was going which was a a really nice cabin with four big chairs and pull down desks and so forth for the senior staff but again he whistled at me and pointed to the chair right across from him and um, so i strapped myself in uh, he was on the other side of the desk. The, I'm looking. I'm, I'm seeing the the hallway to my left, and people are running down the hallway, and then then it stops because everybody's aboard the plane, and all of a sudden the stairs disappear, and an airman closes the door and arms the door, um, leans out over about thirty feet of open air to pull the door shut and then arm it because the engines are already you know pumped up and we're and we're we're moving and uh we go to the we don't go to the end of the runway we go to the closest end of a runway we could find and colonel tillman mark tillman stomps on the brakes powers up the engines and lets loose and we go rolling out of there i've never been except in a carrier landing and takeoff and anything like that as soon as we got airborne he stood it on its tail and i'm looking up at the president who's looking down at me as we're both strapped in and deb lawler Who's not gotten a seat and hasn't put on a seatbelt is literally got her legs braced against the president's desk and her back against the president's, uh, against the wall of the president's cabin. And she's looking down at me and I'm wondering, is that woman going to come falling across the room? Because we're going at a very steep angle of attack. Anyway, that was the start of the day. And, uh, you know, we went. We went across, we were flying across the peninsula of Florida, and an argument broke out. The president wanted to return to Washington, and everybody told him no, mm-hmm. and, and Cheney called him, uh, Rumsfeld left the fires at the Pentagon to call him to try and discourage him. The president, not an angry guy, but he got pretty angry with Andy a couple of times, and particularly got once he, he was angry with morenzo uh, because morenzo came in to repeat the arguments that, the, that had been made to him by card. Andy Card and the president snapped at him, you know, if Andy wants to make those arguments, you tell him to come back in here and make them to me again. Wow. But but finally, the the, the president agreed when uh, Major Tom Gould said, Mr. President, we don't have a full fuel load. If we get to Washington and we can't land, we, we, w- we won't be able to orbit. We have too much weight on the plane. We got lots of, you know, we have the secretary of education and members of Congress and lots of press. So he said, said, let's go to a military base that's nearby. That's. On, on lockdown and it was secure, and we'll offload unessential personnel and load up. And the president knew that was a dodge, but he agreed. And, uh, you know, but we were just south of Jacksonville Naval Air Station, and we bent west, uh, bypassing it, flew over Tyndall Air Force Base, Eglin Air Force Base, uh, and uh, Keesler Air Force Base, and ended up landing at Barksdale Air Force Base in Shreveport, Louisiana because they'd been on lockdown and they were completely secure. They were doing an atomic bomb test drill. And that's oh my where my Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I could go on and on, but yeah. that, that, you get a sense of what the day was like. So um, I, I appreciate you,
0: you know, the really initially discussing the, the scant details that you received and, and the president received throughout the morning. I think it's really important to, to remind um, people of this generation um, that there were no iPhones. There were no. Uh, there was no Instagram. There was no Twitter. Uh, yeah. you, you had secure lines on a landline that you had to. You had to speak to. And, and one question uh, I have for you is: as the president and, and your team are receiving these scant details, um, you know, I I think a lead one of the qualities of leadership that we always talk about at, at the Leadership Center here at GW is that of making the best decision with the appropriate amount of information Mm -hmm. and from your memory and and from that day do you think the president was able to maintain control and and really be able to to focus on and and make the decisions most appropriate decisions with those one or two phone calls that he received
1: well first of all there were lots more than one or two phone calls of course yeah yeah yeah. The, the good news was the radio telephones on the on air force one worked so but they were constantly, you know, because he was not only talking to Cheney and Rumsfeld and Condoleezza Rice and, and uh, Robert Mueller and uh, Director Tenet, But he was also, we we're also talking to, you know, Mayor Giuliani and his people, Governor Pataki and his people. We were talking to FEMA. I mean, we're, you know, talking to lots of people. So that, that worked. But, but, you know, we take technology for granted. And the technology was not as good 20 years ago. For example, there's no satellite TV. So the only right. time we could watch television was when we were passing over Jacksonville, Florida or Tallahassee or Panama City or Pensacola or Mobile, and we could get a signal from the ground that we could watch until the signal grew too weak and the and, in and the and, the, and, incredible. and the, so we're watching we were watching uh, footage of the tower falling and you know but but we're coming in and out of it. Uh, on a more personal level, I had the only blackberry on the on the on the on the plane. The blackberries were not secure, so they were not allowed for government employees. but I had to carry one in order to receive any politically uh, and political messages that routed through the Republican National Committee. So we literally took my my blackberry and passed it around to people so they could email their their um family members to oh, say they my were goodness. okay. And, and then and, and we'd and, and, you know, we'd have 10 or 20 of those emails uh, line or no, five or 10 of them lined up and we'd pass over a city where the BlackBerry could grab a connection and download them to their friends. And, you know, today and, and then one of the reasons that, you know, we, we went to Barksdale so that the president could be on the ground, refuel, you know, get everybody off the plane and then theoretically fly back to Washington. But the president wanted to have a a call with all of the members of the National uh, you know of his of his national security uh, uh, apparatus, and they, they, who had been dispersed to different locations, undisclosed locations. Some of them were in the POC, the President's Emergency Operations Center, the bunker underneath the White House. But they've been dispersed, and back then the technology was such that they said, "Mr. President, we can't get everybody on a video conference." Uh, through at Barksdale. The nearest facility to do that is at Offutt Air Force Base, a Strategic Air Command in Omaha, Nebraska. It's an hour and 15 minutes north of you. Today, President uh, Biden travels with a Halliburton case. Oh, President Obama was the first to have it. I always loved it that it was a, a, a Halliburton case. Uh, it's a metal case, and it's a, it looks like a, a, a briefcase or a suitcase. And you open it up, and plug it into any uh, cable outlet, and you can have a secure video conference with, you know, a number of people appearing on the screen anywhere in the world, like you would have on a Zoom or, 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 or um, you know, Microsoft meetings. And, uh, and nobody, you know, and, that, and that, the, then the president now travels with that. But back then, the technology didn't exist, so we had to fly to, you know, uh, fly an hour and 15 minutes north to off it. You know, this was designed to supposedly, uh, you know, uh, survive a nuclear attack so that runways are like, you know, six miles long or five miles long. So we go to the end of the runway and there's a little brick building there that looks like a telephone switching booth that you'd see alongside the highway, barely big enough for a door. You open the door and you walk downstairs to a bunker way underneath the uh, Nebraska Plains, and that's where the facility was that allowed the president to have this video conference. But a president in a moment like this needs to do three things. president needs to, first of all, absorb and collect as much information as is possible, because there is a fog of war. People say things and do things that turn out not to be accurate. So you have to collect a lot of information and then make decisions on the on the basis of the best information you have knowing that that there's a lot of inconsistent and conflicting information second of all you need to, to you need to communicate with the american people that's why he insisted that he speak with the american people in sarasota that he speak to them again from barksdale and then that he insisted that he speak to the nation that evening from the oval office not from a bunker underneath the nebraska prairies because the president not only needs to communicate with the american people but the president needs to deliver the message calmly and deliberately and backed by the enormous prestige and power of that office in order to give the American people confidence that the right things are being done. So uh, this, this was very much on his mind and one of the reasons why he wanted to be back in Washington. And of course, they were nervous. They said, we don't know what we don't know. There could be another attack. There could be a plan to have somebody with a man pad, a shoulder launch missile uh, in the in the, in, in the Maryland suburbs, just waiting for that distinctive you know, on the flight approach to, to Andrews Air Force Base, just waiting for that distinctive Air Force One to come rolling into sight. I, I, I appreciated you uh, talking about
0: those three lessons. That's one of the questions I had for you. And I wanted to talk about now um, the transition in uh, the abrupt, uh, in a single day, single few hours transition from a, a peacetime president to a wartime president. And the transformation, if you can speak to it, that the president undertook um, throughout that day, realizing that the no, care, no child left behind, which, of course, he did pass uh, later, later in his tenure, and immediately took a back seat. And he was now a type president. And I'll say from just a very personal point of view, I remember asking my father that evening, Dad, do you think this I means it's going to be a war? And, and he said he didn't know. And then, of course, 20 years on, um, um, we know the answer. So can you talk about, did you have any conversations with him about initially about that transition to a wartime presidency or was it just assumed?
1: Well, it was just assumed. I mean, and it happened in a minute. I mean, when he came walking back into the, into the, uh, into the staff hold and said, we're at war, I mean, he, it was clear he recognized where we were. And during the course of the day, he began to take on the, the fearsome responsibilities of being a wartime leader. I mean, you know, he made it very clear very early on both in the private conversations and the public conversations, that this was an attack on our country. And those who had made the attack would be held responsible for what they had done. And that, and that this was now his most important responsibility was to protect our country against any further attacks and to do everything possible to bring those people to justice. And uh, you know, uh, it, 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 just, Andy, Andy and I were sitting there in the, in the, in the cabin with him. And he got a phone call. It was, he didn't say Vice President Cheney, but it was Vice President Cheney calling him. And the president listened and said, Yes. Listened for another 10 or 15 seconds and said, Yes, you have my authorization. Listened a little bit longer and said, Yes. Listened a little bit longer and said, You have my authorization. And then hung up. And he looked at Andy and I and in a voice, you know, very calm. Very deliberate, said, I've just given authorization for the military to shoot down any aircraft inbound to a critical target not under control of its crew. And I remember being shocked. And then I can't remember exactly what he said next, but he sort of looked away and reflected on how terrible it would be to be that young pilot who got that order. But this was Flight 93 uh, turning south from Cleveland, heading back to Washington. North of Camp David, and clearly not under control. We knew at that point that it was not under control of its crew. There had been uh, traffic on on the air traffic control frequencies that gave us clear evidence that it was under control of a of of uh, terrorists. And uh, you know, the only in fact, it took hours to figure out had the craft been brought down by uh, you know U.S. military. No, it had been brought down by the first people who stood up in the war on terror and said, enough. Let's roll. Those words, um, are
0: you ready? Let's roll. Um those were, I know, those were um courageous, courageous words. Um and, and you're right, those were the first, they were the first first heroes. They're the yeah. first, I mean, amongst amongst all of the heroes that day.
1: Yeah, first They were, count they were amongst X- those.
0: Yeah. Um, First counter counterattack, and god bless God bless all of them so uh, moving moving to uh kind of the legacy political legacy of course you were the political uh, senior political advisor to the president um so obviously 911 put us on this 20 year course to where we are now which as you know was initially scheduled to end on September 11th 2021 a, a symbolic date um so how do you think 911 Guided subsequent presidents, and and you can speak to, of course, the the uh, President Bush as well. But subsequent presidents, in your mind, in their attempts to lead the U.S. through counterterrorism, and then, of course, through this conflict in Afghanistan, was it always? It was always the, of course, the the starting point. But what's how did it hang over? And and you know what what role did it play
1: throughout the? Yeah, years? Well, presidents presidents tend to leave their successors. Uh, assets and structures and institutions that help them confront the challenges that we face. Harry S. Truman, who was very underrated at the time, created the modern Defense Department, created the Central Intelligence Agency, set up the National Security Council at the White House, and subsequent presidents, Presidents Eisenhower and Kennedy and Johnson and Nixon and Ford and Carter and and Reagan and and Clinton and Bush, uh, excuse me, Bush forty. One, Clinton, Bush 43, Obama, Trump, they all use these institutions to confront the challenges of their times. So one of the things that is that President Bush created, first of all, the Bush doctrine, which is we, would, we will fight them there, over there, so that we don't have to fight them here at home. We're, gonna, we're, going, to, we're going to remove from power, we're going to get Osama bin Laden, and we're going to remove from power the people who gave him sanctuary, and in essence, made possible his attack on the country and refused to turn him over. And we passed the Patriot Act, which gave new tools to the intelligence community to help us detect threats to the homeland. We created the Department of Homeland Security and the Transportation Security Agency in order to uh, better protect the homeland and people, you know, because they turned airplanes into missiles that day and showed the vulnerability of our transportation system. So there are a number of those kind of things, reforms in FEMA, reforms in the intelligence community, the creation of a national counterterrorism center, the creation of the Department, the director of national intelligence to give coordination to our intelligence, the removal of the of the wall. Uh, This was an administrative procedure put in place in the Clinton years that did not allow the FBI to share critical intelligence with the Central Intelligence Agency about threats to the homeland. So all of these changes and more were made in order to allow us to more effectively fight the war on terror. And for 20 years, there's been no major attack on the homeland. And if you go back to the, to the weeks and months and years immediately after 9-11, there was every concern and every belief that there were going to be follow on attacks. And let me tell you, from having been inside that building, there were lots of those attacks that were foiled by the in part by the new tools that we had in order to deal with the war on terror. And so for 20 years, America has been kept safe. And that's a testimony to the leadership of three presidents and to the tools that were created in a bipartisan fashion in 2001, 2002, and 2003 to allow us to fight this new war against an enemy who doesn't have a capital, doesn't have uh, you know, doesn't have an outstanding army. Does not, you know, it, you know, does not have an infrastructure. Does not have a population to protect. But instead, are non-state, largely non-state actors who are swimming in the midst of the rest of the world. And
0: twenty years on, how do you think the American memory of nine eleven has changed? I mean, I, I like I told you, I was in school, and 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 to your point, in the months, weeks, years. After 9 11, uh, it was assumed by almost everyone that this is the threat facing foreign, foreign terrorism is the threat. And I, I saw uh, an interview with President Bush, and he, he just simply said, well, what, what would you do in, in our shoes? You know, the, the benefit of 2020, if it, if it is, or the hindsight of 2020, doesn't explain the actions taken in the moment. So do you, you think the, the memory, the American collective memory of 9-11 has changed uh, in any significant way? Um, or, do you, or do you think it is still raw and still, um, you know, still with us? And of course, with, for anyone who is affected, of course, it's still with us. But how do you, you think know. the collective American memory has changed? If at well,
1: all? I, think, I think a lot of the Americans who are alive and sentient at that point, you know, adults and so forth, it's, it's raw and real. But time marches on. And that's why we required leaders. I mean, think about it. We had World War II. 20 years later was 1960.
0: I know it's incredible. Yeah.
1: The end of the war was 1965. And imagine what would have happened if um, if in 1965, Lyndon Johnson said, you know, we, we, it's been 20 years since the end of the war. What, what, what would have happened in 1960 if Dwight Eisenhower had said, you know what, I was the commander of the, of, the, of, the, uh, of the operation that invaded Nazi-controlled Europe and ended World War II. But it's 20 years since the war began. And so let's come home from Europe. And would, we, would, could, could, would Europe look the way it does today without an American presence there? No. Soviet communism would have come to dominate much of the continent, if not all of it. And the same in Korea. Now, so talk about! I mean, I love how the people says, "Well, sorry, you know, the longest war is is Afghanistan." No, no, we went into we went into Korea in 1950. There is no peace treaty ending it. They ended the the hostilities, ceased the hostilities in July of 1953, pending a comprehensive peace agreement. But we don't have a peace treaty with the North Koreans. There's no, there's no treaty ending the war in Korea. What happened to 20 years after 19, 1973? What would you know, Richard Nixon, in either 1970, the war started 20 years ago. It's time to end. Oh, and it's 1973. We hostility has ceased. Let's come home from Korea. Does anybody think that the Kim regime would not have stormed into South Korea and taken it, and the world would be a much different place? What what if, you know, we still have 100, over 110,000 troops in Europe, Japan, and Korea. And they've been sustained by Republican presidents and Democratic presidents because they understand it is in our self-interest as America to have a secure world in which more people stand with us against our rivals and enemies than stand against us. And it it is in America is a presence for peace and security in the world. Take Afghanistan. Our combat role ended six years ago. Before that awful afternoon at the Kabul airport last month, our last military casualty was one person in, in February of 2020. Not that, that not to diminish the death of that patriot. But our role was not combat. it was intelligence gathering, counterterrorism, a, a support training, uh, you know and, and if need be, air power, because the, the, you know the Taliban didn't move to take over Afghanistan, not because we had a lot of American troops there. We didn't have a lot of them. It was because they knew that if they moved against, you know, gathered together and moved on a provincial capital between us and the Afghans, we could rain hell down from above for which they had no response. And yet we have now 39 million, almost 40 million people live in Afghanistan. Two thirds of them are under the age of 25. They don't know any country except one in which Women are allowed to be educated and work in which people have freedom of religion and freedom of conscience and freedom of speech. And the the country is trying to become a modern country where that represents its people and respects human rights and gives people a chance to strive to make their lives and the lives of their children and family better. And now that's gone. We've turned them back to the same crowd that that, that said Osama bin Laden has every right to operate with impunity from our soil to attack the, the great Satan.
0: And Carl, just a few more questions for you, but if I can follow up to that, to your comments, do you anticipate um, a return to Afghanistan ever by, the, by American and or joint NATO forces?
1: I wouldn't be surprised at it. When the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Milley, says that the, that the uh, rise of the Taliban in Afghanistan means that in as little as 12 months, we'll see a resurgence of terrorism around the world. You know, we we've learned a terrible lesson on nine eleven, which is think about it. There were five separate attacks by Al Qaeda launched from Afghanistan before nine eleven, culminating in the attack in October of twenty of, of two thousand on the U.S. destroyer Cole, and and we didn't respond. And what did it do? It emboldened our enemy. So they said, "Oh, the weak America, the great Satan is a paper tiger." There was a famous. Uh, Middle East expert Bernard Lewis, who taught it. Yes,
0: Bernard Lewis, yeah,
1: a great, brilliant man. And, and I yeah. Remember, I remember, he came. He was he was visiting with the president, and he said the most important thing to remember about the Middle East is the strong horse. Whoever is the strongest horse will 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 be will will draw most of the support in the region, and and you must strive to be the strongest horse militarily, economically, diplomatically, personally. And we're no longer the strongest horse. We're, we're the, the president may may compliment himself on the withdrawal, and I hate to be so so pointed about it. But the, go read what the Taliban is saying about it. The decadence and the decay they have said they have they have prevailed with Allah's help over the great Satan, and they're going to be even by this. Don't we should not kid ourselves.
0: So, if I can uh, ask just two more questions, Carl. Um... And this is a great, I don't take any credit for this question. So my my colleague Kat asked, you know, sent me a great question. She said, you know, how can a president be an effective leader um, when you can't show your constituency all of your cards? Meaning, you know, presidents are briefed on national security issues da- daily. They have the intelligence briefing daily. And that involves sensitive private information that cannot be made public. How does a president communicate those issues as a leader, uh, uh, to his constituency,
1: that is a great question, particularly in the shadow war in which we find ourselves. Because the president can't go out and say, "Today we have foiled the following, um, you know, attack on the country by doing, you know, by doing X, Y, and Z." There were moments where we where where we could say those kind of things, but you're right the the, the you know you do not want to compromise sources and methods of intelligence. And so there were are moments where drone strike attacks or special operations were became public, but you 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 the most important thing is to keep to the mission, and that's why you can't you can't do things that compromise the mission. So it just requires a president to be constantly reminding the American people of the challenge we face, and um, and rallying their support for that. We did that against Soviet communism in many ways, because again. And some of the of what we did in that in the in the Cold War could not be talked about openly and publicly. But again, we were fortunate that we had a string of presidents, both Democrat and Republican, who understood the existential threat of Soviet communism. We have had that in a lesser fashion, a less firm and committed fashion. But, you know, for example, President Obama came into office and wanted to withdraw and did withdraw from Iraq and had to go back in. and. you know, it's, we may have to do that now, but but your, 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 the, your, your colleague gave a great question because it is one of the great challenges of leadership. I mean, think about how Churchill himself had to rally the British people, particularly in, uh, in the tough times of 1941 and 42. But even more difficult was to keep the spirits up in 1943 and 44. You know, it was one thing after Normandy it was another thing before Normandy because he could not say we're we're coming. He had to, he had to, he had to lay the, you know, he had to raise spirits by saying that, you know, the, the, the United might of, of the allies will prevail over Nazism, but he couldn't share things with the British people. And, and because he'd be sharing them with, with Adolf Hitler and, and his bunker.
0: Yeah. And, 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 you know, in Churchill's example, he, um, as, as, many times as possible provided the reality of the situation when the mm-hmm. when the incredible amount of, tr- of soldiers came home from dunkirk he celebrated of course their survival and their return but he said this is we are now at the moment of of being alone and mm-hmm. retreating is never a, a victory mm-hmm. um and, and was honest and open with his people uh, uh, about the reality and I, and I think that invoked a, a sense of trust um in him and you're right so at leadership crucial times are, are to be as as direct and open as possible but but of course can't always share everything so uh carl if i can if i can ask you as as our final moment uh, you know i, I want to make sure we honor those who died and and um uh, of course the innocent victims of those of course who uh were the first responders uh to these attacks i saw an interview with you a couple weeks ago where you recounted a story and if you don't mind doing so again of the president meeting uh, the mother of, a, of a uh, I believe, it was a, 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 a perished NYPD officer at the Javits Center um, yeah. a few days after 9-11. Could you, could you tell that story and what she gave? Yeah.
1: Of- Port, Port Authority officer. Um, after the iconic moment at uh, Ground Zero on Friday, this is the bullhorn moment, which was a total and complete accident. Uh, there's uh, uh, Martha McCallum's doing a great... Um, Documentary this weekend about it, in which uh, the name Nina Bishop will be mentioned. That that iconic moment comes about as a result of of Nina Bishop deciding that 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 she's not going to listen to her superiors, and instead she's going to try and provoke the president uh, into having a moment where he speaks at Ground Zero. And the, the anyway, it's a great story. But after after that iconic moment, we got in a motorcade to go to the Javits Center, the convention hall. Which had been turned into a combination bunkhouse and slash dormitory and um, cafeteria for all of the rescue workers who were working at ground zero and the president was going to go there for a shift change so are going to be a shift coming off and a shift going out and he was going to thank the first responders um for their work and and he did that and then and it was a great because i mean you know, these people coming back, begrimed and you and know, exhausted after a 12 hour on and, you know, a crew getting ready to go out. I mean, it was really it, it was so you couldn't help but just be so proud of the American spirit in, in a moment like that. Then afterwards, you went to the parking garage. And in the parking garage, they had put up a temporary room. They'd used pipe and drape to create, in essence, a room in the middle of the parking garage. And inside were the families of first responders who were dead or missing. And the president was supposed to be there for, I think, 45 minutes. And he ended up being there for hours. And he walked in and it was not organized. So it's just a mob of people. But they sort of semi-organized themselves into a receiving line. And he worked his way through that receiving line. And this was, you know, a, 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 a terrible responsibility of a president is to be the comforter in chief. And where, where, where Churchill or where FDR or where LBJ or Nixon found the ability to do this, or in this case, Bush, is beyond me because it's a terrible responsibility. And so he sat, he stood there for hour after hour consoling people who had either lost a loved one or, or had hope that somehow, some way four days after the terrible events that their loved one would be found. I remember a kid, he could not have been more than 10 years old, held up to the president a picture of his father. And the president took it and, you know, wrote a note to his father on it. And the kid just grabbed him and just hugged him around his his legs. And the kid, you know, it's just, he won't let go. And the president has to console the, the kid who's like desperate for hope. And so was everybody in that room. I noticed there was an elderly woman who, I, incidentally, I, 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 I was in the room for about 15 or 20 minutes and, and, and couldn't stop weeping at the sight of the, all this and left the room and was terribly ashamed at it until just a moment or two later, uh, a great friend of the president's who is was a pastor in Houston came out weeping as well. We sort of steadied each other up and went back in, but it was so emotional. So anyway, I noticed there's a woman who's sort of clearly wanting to speak to the president. She, I think she had a cane, but she was clearly elderly. Somebody found her a chair, and she sort of was positioned at what was the end of this, this receiving line because the president was working through the line. The line wasn't coming to him. He was going down the line. And finally, got to the end, and Arlene Howard was sitting there, and her son, George, was off duty that day. And when the balloon went up, George donned his uniform and went to the World Trade Center and died rescuing people, trying to save lives. And Arlene had his badge and she gave it to the president and said, Mr. President, I want you to have this because I don't want you to ever forget what happened and what sacrifices were made. And for the next seven years as president, uh, President Bush carried that badge in his pocket uh, almost, uh, you know, was with him constantly as a reminder of what his ultimate responsibility as the president was, which was to protect the country, protect the homeland from another such attack, and to make certain that we honor the sacrifices of people like George Howard by doing everything possible to bring to account the people who did it.
0: I can only imagine how strong that that totem was for him. Um, yeah. Carl, I, I greatly appreciate your time. Uh, thank you for for sharing your story with us. And um, uh, um, God bless all of those who, who perished that day. God bless them all.